0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Sacrifice. Sacrificing. What is it? And what is it supposed to accomplish? What is it supposed to accomplish? This is really what we need to discuss uh, and grapple with today. What comes to mind when I mention sacrifice? I want you to stop and give yourself 15 seconds and I want words to just pop into your, into your head. Go ahead. Don't say them out loud, but just say it. <coughs> or just think about it. You probably thought about the cross. About giving up things. About death. Or killing an animal. Maybe you thought about removing something from our use so that God can have it? Yes? Okay. I want to read you a quotation from Cardinal Ratzinger's Spirit of the Liturgy. I'll call him Cardinal Ratzinger in this talk because this was before he was elected as Pope. Um, If you haven't read Spirit of the Liturgy, I highly recommend it to you. I'll be quoting it quite a bit tonight. What pleasure is God supposed to take in destruction? Isn't this our common view of the offering of incense or the burning of a candle, that we are taking something that is precious to us and removing it from our use, burning it, sacrificing it, so that it is removed from our use and given to God? What pleasure is God supposed to take in destruction? Is anything really surrendered to God through destruction? One answer is that destruction always conceals within itself the act of acknowledging God's sovereignty over all things. But can such a mechanical act really serve God's glory? Can such a mechanical act really serve God's glory? Obviously, when we speak of sacrifice, the cross of Christ and His sufferings come To the forefront of our mind, and during the season of Lent, probably the sacrifices that you are making uh, also come up, huh? Giving up certain foods, turning off your televisions, right? Institute of Catholic Culture people, y'all turned off your televisions during Lent, right? Giving up something, giving up something, oftentimes things which are good. This is our challenge: what pleasure? What glory is God supposed to get from that? What joy is God supposed to get from the death of his son? Certainly, one of the more common understandings is that Christ's sacrifice ought to be put in terms of justice. God is infinitely perfect in himself. And therefore, when Adam and Eve sinned, God was infinitely offended. And therefore, as the theory goes, only an infinite God could satisfy the debt owed. Now, I don't know about you, but requiring that one person namely, Jesus Christ, be slapped, spit on, crucified, murdered to appease the perfect and infinite justice of God for something that someone else did sounds like cosmic child abuse more than the revelation of a loving and all-merciful God. In Ratzinger's terms, what pleasure is God supposed to take in destruction? We'll certainly come back to this theme throughout our time together this evening. And while I would reject this false notion of justice that requires infinite suffering to appease the infinite offense, it does open up for us the heart of the matter. Why does God require sacrifices? Or maybe more to the heart of the subject, why does God require the sacrifice of His Son? How does the cross of Christ resolve the problem? And how do our sacrifices fit into the picture? And this is what must remain at the heart of our discussion this evening that we have to grapple with. How does the cross of Christ save us? What does it save us from? Again, I believe that this brings us really ultimately to the heart of the matter, which is obviously the fall of Adam and Eve, the ancestral sin, what we call original sin. And so I ask you an important question. And I would challenge you to consider this throughout the coming week. Well, I think we'll have a chance to answer it tonight, but it certainly is challenging. Before the fall, did God require sacrifice? Before the fall, did God require sacrifice? Let me restate the question. If Christ's sacrifice appeased the justice of God, when Adam and Eve were in a state of perfect justice, did God require sacrifice? And if so, why? And this brings us back to our fundamental question today. What is sacrifice? It also brings us back to the beginning to the story of Adam and Eve, which many of you that have been with me many times have known I go back to in every single talk I give. Sacrifice, I would say, is a term that is fraught with endless misunderstandings. And I would say that if we want to understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if we want to understand His redemptive gift, if we want to understand what He is about to undergo and what we are called to undergo with Him, we must look at the way things were supposed to be. If we don't, then we will not recognize redemption when it comes. I'll share with you a quotation from Cardinal Jean Danielou that I've shared with some of you before. There can be no serious theology of the Incarnation or the Redemption without referring to chapter 3 of Genesis. And I would say chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis. To leave it in the dark is to be content with only a small part of the subject. It is to risk jarring one's faith in the Redemption. Where original sin is minimized, the Redemption takes the same path. And where Redemption is minimized, faith is gone. And I would add to Cardinal Danielou's point where faith is gone, there is no hope of salvation. We can say it this way. What Adam failed to do is what Jesus does. What Adam failed to do is what Jesus does. Or we could turn it around. Jesus does what Adam failed to do Pook is that you in the back how are you doing it's been too long don't leave without saying hello to me all right Pook is one of the founding members of the Institute way back at St. John's stand up and say hello to everybody Pook go ahead stand up all right now that she's sufficiently embarrassed let's move on with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ Um, I want to go in very quickly into some stuff that I have covered in some previous talks for some of you, but to get us all on the same page, I believe it's absolutely necessary here, especially at the beginning of Holy Week. And that is to begin to remember, or to begin for the first time to understand who God is in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and who we are made in His image and likeness. Because if we don't do that, if we don't understand the foundation, then we won't understand what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to save us. Amen, brothers and sisters? Amen. Amen. You better be able to tell me what He saved us from and what He saved us for. And to know that, and to understand that, you need to understand and know God's original plan. For God is not outdone by the devil. Rather, God outdoes the devil and restores in Jesus Christ the gift which He originally had planned for Adam and Eve. What Jesus is about to do is to walk us back into paradise where we are to receive all the many gifts which God had prepared for His children in the beginning. Everything that you see and you hear happen in the church today will be about that. And so, I ask you to turn your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 1 very quickly. I hope you did bring your Bibles with you Catholics. And don't pull out your cell phones. That's not a book, and the word Bible means book. And I ask you and I'm going to go very quickly, so I hope I'm going to skip some things in my notes, but I, I hope I don't skip too many things that may make no sense at all. How is God revealed to us in Genesis chapter one? I'll give you the answer. We got a big crowd tonight rather than field questions and answers and things like that. God is revealed to us as the Creator, number one. Number one, as the Creator. And number two, as love. As John says in his epistle, God is love. And in Genesis chapter 1, we hear a repetition, almost like a litany in the church, of a phrase over and over and over again, and God saw that it was good. And God saw... That it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good seven times repeated in Genesis chapter 1. And God saw that it was very good. To see something as good is to see it as desirable. Desire is the most fundamental movement of the will. And when our will is oriented not at... Uh, glasses of wine, which you obviously saw as good tonight, but the most important things, when our will is oriented at persons, we call that desire love. Love is, by definition, the giving of the life of the lover to the beloved. That which was found, the most precious thing of all, your life, is now found in the One you love. The two become one flesh. My spouse, my best friend, has the most important thing that I have. And I have the most important thing that they have. The two have literally become one. And God saw that it was good. No greater love hath any man than to give his life for his friend. Joseph Pieper, one of the great modern philosophers says in his work on love that love is the affirmation of the existence of the other. It is to say to the other, it is good that you are. How wonderful that you exist. And God saw that it was good. Seven times we hear in Genesis chapter 1 that God desires to share His life with His creation. Don't take that lightly. God wants to make creation participate in His life to become partakers of His nature. It's not by accident that when all things are restored, a man takes a piece of bread in his hand and fills it with God's life, divinizes it, so that it can once again do what creation was meant to do, communicate God's life. And at the high point of creation, we learn that Adam and Eve are made in the image and likeness of God. Not just any God. Not the God of the Muslims or the God of the deists, but the God of Scripture. The God who is a loving Creator. The One who is known by the attribute of love. One who is known and is identified as the One who shares His life. Man is made in his image and likeness. And so we begin to answer the most important question tonight. What are we made for? And how does sacrifice fit into that picture? Again, Joseph Pieper says, it is God who in the act of creation anticipated all conceivable human love and said, I will you to be. It is good very good that you exist. Human love, therefore, is by its nature and must inevitably always be a kind of repetition of this perfected and in the exact sense of the word, creative love of God. But if all goes well, if all goes happily as it should, then in human love something more takes place than mere echo and repetition and imitation. What takes place is a continuation and even a perfecting of what was begun in the course of creation. How do we exactly, in the words of Joseph Pieper, continue the creative act of God? Yes, being fruitful, multiplying, having dominion over creation, but there's something more. As St. Gregory of Nyssa says, If the Creator had given you everything, how would the Kingdom of Heaven open to you? He left your likeness incomplete so that you might complete it yourself and might be worthy of the reward which comes from God. Yes, Adam and Eve were the crown jewel of God's creation made in His image and likeness. But the creation story does not end on the sixth day but rather finds its perfection and fulfillment on the seventh day. And we do well to reflect, I believe, here on the mystery of the Sabbath day. You can look in your Bibles there as chapter 2, verse 1 and following of Genesis, in which we learn that God rested on the seventh day. And when God rested, He blessed creation. Why is... Why is the creation of the world revealed to us in a seven-day pattern? Because according to Hebrew numerology, the number seven represents the covenant. Let me say that again. The number seven uh, from a Hebrew mindset represents covenant. In every covenant, two parties become one. Right? Marriage covenant, the two become one flesh. In fact, the number seven and the word for covenant in Hebrew share a common root. And so oftentimes in the Old Testament, the number seven will be used as a representation of something deeper taking place. And that deeper thing is the union of God with man. God created and reveals His creation in Genesis in a seven-day pattern to tell us something fundamentally important which has been revealed to us in Genesis chapter 1, and that is that God is love. And He wants to share His life with us. He wants His creation to be united to Him. And therefore, we learn that on that day of covenant, on the seventh day, God rests, and when He rests, He blesses creation. He blesses creation. It's fundamentally important that we keep that before us. For when a thing is blessed, what happens to it, Catholics? You bring things. I hope you bring things to Father to bless all the time. He takes bread and wine in His hands and blesses them. What happens when a thing is blessed? It is filled with God's life. We take these things which are blessed by God through the hands of our priests and we reverence them, don't we? We kiss them. We put them in, in, in special places in our homes. When a thing is blessed, it is filled with God's life. St. Thomas Aquinas says that, that this, regarding blessing, he says the sanctification of each creature consists in its resting in God. For this reason, things dedicated to God are said to be sanctified. Hold on to that word sanctified. We're going to come back to it. I'll share with you a a quotation from a wonderful biblical scholar um, who said, no one hearing this text in ancient Israel, the text of the Sabbath day, God's resting and blessing creation, would have thought of only a rest for God on this day, but would immediately recognize that God's people were called to image God in a way that was open to all human beings but actualized only by Israel. They are called to imitate God, not only in His activity, His creative activity, but in His perfecting of creation and resting on the day made holy by God Himself. In other words, Adam's image and likeness are to find their supernatural perfection and end when they not only are fruitful and multiply, but when they give the greatest gift they have received to those around them, when they bless and when they sanctify creation. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, if you're taking notes, you can write down paragraph 1078. 1078. Blessing is a divine and life-giving action, the source of which is the Father. When applied to man, the word blessing means adoration and surrender to His Creator in thanksgiving. I cannot tell you how beautifully that is written. We're going to unpack that a bit over the next uh, few minutes together. Blessing is a divine and life-giving action, the source of which is the Father. When applied to man, the word blessing means adoration and surrender to His Creator in thanksgiving. It is here that we begin to understand and learn about the priesthood of Adam and Eve. Man is the height of creation, the high point of creation, but he's essentially ordered to the seventh day. God poured forth life into creation culminating in the creation of man who received all of creation as a gift and was called to take that gift and to offer it back to God His Father. The seventh day is the perfection of the whole of creation. All is from God and is oriented to God. It is the culmination and perfection of all of creation because we are made perfect when we receive the greatest gift of all, namely God's life in our soul. Man is not fully man unless he is living God's life. Cardinal Ratzinger again in Spirit of the Liturgy says, creation moves toward the Sabbath to the day on which man and the whole created order participate in God's rest in His freedom. Creation exists to be a place for the covenant that God wants to make with man. The goal of creation is the covenant. The joining of the two parties as one. It is the love story of God and man. He goes on to say that the covenant is a relationship. God's gift of Himself to man, but also man's response to God. And man's response to God who is good to him is love. And loving God means worshipping Him. Loving God means worshipping Him. I cannot tell you again how important that is. For we are made in the image and likeness of God who is love which means that we find our perfection in returning that gift of God, that gift of God's life, in living our life out in thanksgiving to the One who gave it to us. And when we do that, we call that action worship. God wants us to be like Him. Don't forget that. God wants us to be like Him And so there are two actions toward creation and toward God. Man made in the image and likeness of God was not only to be like God in creation, but he was to be like God also in living out his vocation on the seventh day by communicating God's life to the rest of creation. I'll share with you a quotation from Sedona the Syrian, an early church father in his work, The Book of Perfection. He says that man makes his sacrifice to God through his obediential submission. Like a living sacrifice, suitable and pleasing to God, he employs his body for rational service. He consecrates and somehow presents to God the vows and offerings of His limbs and offers the sacrifices suitable for the action of grace, which are the rational fruits of the lips of those who confess His name by incessantly celebrating in their body and soul God to whom they belong now and in definitive oblation." The catechism says, God created everything for man, but man in turn was created to serve and love God and to offer all of creation back to Him. I'm going to turn this um, slide... Don't start reading that slide yet because I don't think I was actually supposed to turn the slide. I wasn't. I'm going back to Sad Jesus. Okay. It's a beautiful image. It really portrays, I think, uh, an aspect of Christ's suffering and his, His gift of love. God created everything for man, but man in turn was created to serve and love God and to offer all things back to Him. Cardinal Ratzinger goes on to say that here we can see what the foundation of existence must be. It is the steadfast adherence to the law of God which orders human actions rightly. That is, by organizing them as realities that come from God and are meant to return to Him. I was reminded as preparing our our talk this evening of the offertory uh, prayer in the Roman church and also in the Byzantine tradition. Blessed are You, Lord God of all creation, for through Your goodness we have received the bread we offer to You. It's his, and we receive it as a gift, and we offer it back to him. In the the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, we say, We offer you what is your own from what is your own. And so begins, as, as Cardinal Ratzinger said, the beginning of the spiritual creation. Again, it's here that we see the original worship of Adam and Eve. Yes, there's the quotation from Cardinal Ratzinger, which I didn't think was right here, but it is there. Here begins the spiritual creation. The creation of the covenant. And creation looks toward the covenant, the union. But the covenant completes creation and does not simply exist alongside it. And so we need to reflect upon this return, this gift of ourselves, this offering or oblation or sacrifice. What do these terms really mean? What does it mean to offer something to God? What is sacrifice that man is called to make it? What happens when we sacrifice something? Is it the removal from man's use? Or the destruction of something? Or the killing of an animal to appease God's justice? I would say it is not. Again, Cardinal Ratzinger on Spirit of the Liturgy, it's always nice when you have a Pope on your side. (laughs) What is worship? What happens when we worship? In all religions, sacrifice is at the heart of worship. But this is a concept that has been buried under the debris of endless misunderstanding. The common view is that sacrifice has something to do with destruction. It means handing over to God a reality that is in some way precious to man. And now this handing over presupposes that it is withdrawn from the use by man. And that can only happen through its destruction, its definitive removal from the hands of man. But this immediately raises the question what I shared with you earlier. What pleasure is God supposed to take in destruction? Is anything really surrendered to God through destruction? One answer is that destruction always conceals within itself the act of acknowledging God's sovereignty over all things. But can such a mechanical act really serve God's glory? Obviously not. True surrender to God looks very different. It consists, according to the fathers, in the union of man and creation with God. Belonging to God has nothing to do with destruction or non-being. It is rather a way of being. That is why St. Augustine could say that the true sacrifice is the city of God. That is, a love transformed Mankind. True sacrifice is the divinization of creation and the surrender of all things to God. God all in all. That is the purpose of the world. And that is the essence of sacrifice and worship. Sacrifice, brothers and sisters, is a way of being. What does he mean? I'll share with you a, another quotation from a, a modern biblical scholar, a Pauline a specialist in Pauline theology, who speaks of the Old Testament sacrifices, the killing of animals, and the sacrifice of Christ. The blood shed in sacrifice was not then a vicarious punishment meted out on an animal instead of on the person who immolated it, which is our common view of the sacrifice of Christ. Rather, the life of the animal was consecrated to God. It was a symbolic dedication of the life of the person who sacrificed to Yahweh. It is not Pauline teaching that the Father willed the death of His Son to satisfy the debts owed to God or to the devil by human sinners. It is not Pauline, or I could say biblical theology or teaching that the Father willed the death of His Son to satisfy a debt which was owed to him. I think I'm in a good point. Okay, I think I'm in a good point to stop for a moment. I hope I challenged your common uh, concept of what is going on in that picture. And now we are going to turn the corner and talk about what really is going on in that picture and what we are called to do when we stand before the crucified Lord. And I'm here to tell you that if you can understand this and that you can enter into this, it will, I promise, transform the week that is ahead. For we are called to do nothing less than enter into the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in its true meaning. For those who have not first died with Jesus Christ will not rise from the dead with Him. I'll turn that around to make that a positive. For those of us who meet Jesus Christ on Good Friday and willingly take up the cross, for those of us that say, yes, Lord, I will die with You, we will walk out of the tomb on Sunday morning we will rise from the dead and we will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And I'll just mention two words to you which I think are going to help you understand how we have kind of misconstrued, misdefined the the, the term sacrifice today in English, which comes to us from two Latin words two latin words sacra which means basically holy, holy and facture which means make. to make now now i want you to know that this lady knows her latin okay because when you look it, it doesn't define it that way in this it uses a secondary aspect of the word facere, which is a which is okay but not all that helpful it says to do or perform Which, okay, I can get it, but as they go further in this definition, they get way off base. To sanctify, to sanctify, comes to us from two words. Well, a Latin word, sanctificare, which two words. The first word is basically a form of sacra, meaning holy, holy, and facere, meaning to make. It's the same word. Slight variation, but you see how how different in English we end up defining these words. Because I think if we think in the terms to sanctify something, when we talk about Father sanctifying the bread, sanctifying the waters of baptism, we don't usually think in terms of sacrifice, do we? But my dear friends, the meanings are virtually the same. Closely related. And it's that close relation and the fundamental definition of the word sacrifice that we must regain as Christians to understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, Cardinal Ratzinger speaks in terms of an exodus and ready to. So a going forth from God in creation culminating in the creation of man made in his image and likeness who receives the gift of creation and then offers it to God. I love this image. One of the most ancient paintings or images in the catacombs of a Christian who is worshiping, who is sacrificing, who is loving God, who is making holy, And I love this image because it's very close to the image of the crucified Christ. It's the person who has their hands raised in a sacrifice of thanksgiving, belonging to God now and in definitive oblation according to Sedona the Syrian. Sacrifice, according to Cardinal Ratzinger, is in essence simply a returning to love and therefore divinization. Sacrifice and the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice that each one of us makes is in essence, Simply a returning to love and therefore divinization. Divinization is, is, is the sharing of God's life. Making one a partaker in the divine nature. The true and literal meaning of sacrifice is to make holy. And let's not lose sight of image and likeness. The gift of ourself and offering of ourselves is fundamentally... The image, or the living out of our image and likeness of God, who is love. Pope St. John Paul II says this God is love, and in himself he lives a mystery of personal loving communion. From all eternity, God poured forth his life to the Son in the Holy Spirit. From all eternity, God is love, which is the sharing of one's life with the beloved. God is love, and in himself he lives a mystery of personal loving communion, creating the human race in his own image and likeness, sorry, in his own image, and continually keeping it in being. God inscribed in the humanity of man and woman the vocation, right, the calling and the capacity and the responsibility of love and communion. Love is therefore the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being. Love is therefore the innate vocation of every human being. We are fundamentally made by God to do one thing. To love to affirm creation in such a way as to will its perfection. And Cardinal Ratzinger, mirroring or repeating what Pope John Paul II said, says that in reditus, in the return, in the worship of God, the creature existing in its own right comes home to itself it reclaims his original identity. And this act is an answer in freedom to God's love. It accepts creation from God as His offer of love and then ensues a dialogue of love. That holy new kind of unity that love alone can create. The being of the other is not absorbed or abolished, but rather in giving itself, it becomes fully itself. In giving of ourselves, we become ourselves. In giving of our own life, we live out our image and likeness of God. When Jesus was approached and asked which of the commandments was most important, He said, you shall love the Lord your God. And you know what love means. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all of the law and the prophets. I want to come back then to the question of the Old Testament and sacrifice and look at two texts which I think are uh, very important for us today. And the first one is in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. While you're looking at that, I'm going to look up another text which I want to share with you, but it's not in my notes. And I think it's very important to share with you. So give me a moment. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with your heart and with all your soul? This is what God requires. Does He require the sacrifice of animals? Does He require all the sacrifices prescribed by the Old Testament so that they're fulfilled in a law? Does He require the sacrifice of His Son to pay for the debt of another person? No. What does God desire? He desires that we live out our image and likeness. He wants our heart because He's given us His heart. Look at Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25 is the building of the the tent of meeting in the the desert. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me an offering from every man whose heart makes them willing. You shall receive the offering from me. And this is the offering which you shall receive from them. Gold and scarlet stuff, fine linen, twined linen, and tanned ram skins, and goats and acacia wood. He's asking for all the things that are going to be needed to build the tent of meeting where the sacrifices are going to take place. Does God need this stuff? Notice what he tells Moses. He doesn't say go to every single person and require from them uh, acacia wood and purple linen. and Go to each person and they must fulfill their obligation. And if not, they're cast out of God's house. No, He doesn't say that. What does He say? Go to every person whose heart makes Him willing, for it's all God's anyways. He does not desire to build a house of wood. He desires to build a house out of our love. A place for Him to dwell. Not in, in, in stone and on, in wood, but in the flesh of those who are made in His image and likeness. Turn with me to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. The Psalms are right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 50. Just kind of scan through it and you're going to find it. You shouldn't have those tabs on your Bible. It makes it too easy for you. <laughs> Psalm 50. Okay, we're going to look. You with me? Psalm 50. We're going to look at verse 7. Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not repute, reprove you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before Me. I will accept no bull from your house, nor he-goat from your folds. For every beast of the forest is Mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the air and all that moves in the field is Mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all that is in it is, is Mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Literally literally in the Greek, a, a, a sacrifice of Eucharist. Eucharistia. You want to know about a Eucharistic person? That's a Eucharistic person. One who's offering themselves to God. One who lives their life in every aspect of their life as a gift of of themselves to the One who gave it to them in the beginning. That's true sacrifice. The sacrifice of thanksgiving. While we're here, let's might as well look at Isaiah. Take a look at Isaiah. Just It's a little further in your Bible, not too far. Isaiah, we're going to look at chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. Because this will begin to tie in for us now... Um, Our sacrifices as united to Christ's sacrifice. And I do sure hope and pray that all of you are planning this coming week to join in Christ's sacrifice. And how do we do it? Let's take a look at chapter 58 of Isaiah. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to My people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek Me daily and delight to know My ways. And if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinances of their Lord, sorry, as if they were a nation that did righteousness, they ask of Me righteous judgment. They delight to draw near to God. Verse 3, Why have we fasted? and thou seest not? Why have we humbled ourselves and thou takest no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with wicked fists. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose A day for a man to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a rush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the thongs of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him I read this somewhere once before and to not to hide yourself from your own flesh then then shall your light break forth like dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will will answer. You shall cry and He will say, Here I am. If you take away from the midst of you the yoke, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday." I want you to hold on to that. I would highly recommend reading that on your own over the next few days. I want to come back to Cardinal Ratzinger um, for a moment and repeat what I had shared with you earlier. In our return, In our worship, the creature existing in its own right comes home to itself, and this act is an answer to, in freedom to God's love. It accepts creation from God as his offer of love, and thus ensues a dialogue of love that is, that, that, that that wholly new kind of unity that love alone can create. The being of the other is not absorbed or abolished, but rather in giving itself, it becomes fully itself. This unity is not just a unity of God and man. It is the completion of the return of all creation to the hands of the Creator. The divinization of creation at the hands of man. At our hands. What Father does at the altar is only the beginning and the seed of what each one of us is called to do in our life to offer a sacrifice of praise until the creation becomes a glorious symphony giving praise to its Creator. Our every action becomes a recognition of who He is. In every action, we glorify Him. But what happened with the fall of Adam and Eve? How exactly did this happen Reflection of God's Gift Breakdown. St. Augustine, the conclusion is that the devil would not have begun by an open and obvious sin to tempt man into doing something that God had forbidden. Had not man already begun to seek satisfaction in himself and consequently to take pleasure in the words, you shall be as gods. The promise of these words, however, would much more truly have to pass if by obedience Adam and Eve had kept close to the ultimate and true source of their being and had not by pride imagined that they were themselves the source of their being. Whoever seeks to be more than he is becomes less. Whenever He aspires to be self-sufficing, He retreats from the One who is truly self-sufficient for Him. They sought perfection in themselves, away from the perfect One, away from their true end. And in this, they cut themselves off from their source of life. Cardinal Ratzinger says that everything is bound up with freedom. The creature has the freedom to turn the positive exitus, the positive gift of its creation, around, as it were, to rupture it in the fall. This is the refusal to be dependent. This is the refusal to be dependent, saying no to the return, saying no to worship, saying no to love. Love is seen as dependency. And it is rejected. If I can point to one illness that our society has today, it's this. That love is seen as dependency. And it is rejected for being independent is considered to be the greatest right of all. It is the great lie of the devil. It is the great lie of the devil to get us to believe that we can live a life of independency. For we are made by our very nature in the image and likeness of God to be dependent and to have others who are dependent upon us for their gift of life. And in this, the order is absolutely destroyed. We are no longer ordering things to God but to ourselves. Even the tree of life is taken away and becomes in the state of disorder because of the state of disorder. We will use it for our own ends and it will drive us further away from God. And now for the first time, we have a new reality. What we call mortal life. God is at a distance. The law of God is no longer in our heart. It is outside of us. It is written on stone. It's at this point that we can answer the fundamental question and problem of all humanity. Why is life mortal? Why is death and death alone the only absolute condition of that which exists? I have a quotation for you from Father Alexander Schmemann on Great Lent. And he says, the church answers this question, why is death and death alone the only absolute condition of that which exists? The church answers, because man rejected life as it was offered and given to him by God and preferred a life depending not on God alone, but on bread alone. Not only did he disobey God for which he was punished, he changed the very relationship between himself and the world. To be sure, the world was given to him by God as food, as a means of life. Yet life was meant to be communion with God. It had not only its end, but its full content in Him. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. And the world and food were thus created as means of communion with God. And only if accepted for God's sake was it to give life. In itself, food has no life and cannot give life. Only God has life and is life. In food itself, God was the principle of life thus to eat, to be alive, to know God, to be in communion with God were one and the same thing. The unfathomable tragedy of Adam is that he ate for its own sake. More than that, he ate apart from God in order to be independent of Him. Obviously, Father Schmemann is speaking about more than food. He's speaking of the use of of the entire created order who draws its life from God, but when man disconnects it from God, it no longer has the very thing that it was meant to do within it. And now, as Father Schmemann says, creation becomes a cosmic cemetery. Life becomes known by one attribute, mortality. St. Athanasius tells us that men bowed down by the pleasures of the moment and by the frauds and illusions of the evil spirits did, did not lift up their heads toward the truth. For men turned in the opposite direction, down among the things of the senses. Boethius says that we became weighted down by our sins, bowed down, looking down at the earth rather than able to stand and look up at God. And it is for this reason that God became incarnate and was born in a feeding trough of animals that we might feed upon Him and in that act be drawn up to the vision of God. Salvation then becomes a reordering. A reordering of the world back to God. And this is what Jesus came to do And this is what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. Again, Cardinal Ratzinger, if sacrifice in its essence is simply a returning to love and therefore divinization, worship now in our post-fallen state has a new aspect. The healing of wounded freedom, atonement, purification, deliverance from estrangement. The essence of worship the essence of sacrifice remains unchanged, but now it assumes the aspect of healing, the loving transformation of broken freedom. Worship is directed to the other in himself, to his all-sufficiency, but now it refers itself to the other who alone can extricate extricate me from the knot that I myself cannot untie. Redemption now needs a Redeemer. He it is who makes His way to us and takes the sheep onto His shoulders. That is, He assumes our human nature. And as the God-man, He carries man, the creature, home to God. And so the return, the worship of God now becomes possible. But now sacrifice takes the form of the cross of love that in dying makes a gift of itself. Such sacrifice has nothing to do with destruction. It is an act of new creation. The restoration of creation to its true identity. All worship now is a participation in the Passover of Christ in His passing over from death to life, in His taking of our human nature from its place of estrangement from God, from our mortality to life everlasting. And this is the key to understanding the sacrifice of Christ. The exterior act, as Cardinal Ratzinger states, the the exterior act of being crucified I want you to hold on to this. The exterior act of being crucified, of being murdered, which Jesus was, the exterior act of being crucified is accompanied by an interior act of self-giving. This body is given for you. No one takes My life from Me, says the Lord. I lay it down of My own accord. The exterior act of being crucified is accompanied by an interior act of self-giving. God the Father is not a cosmic child abuser. God the Father seeks one thing, and that is for us, made in His image and likeness, to return to our true identity. No matter what, no matter what may come, the love for God did not die in the heart of Jesus. His hope in God did not die in the heart of Jesus. But through the act of being crucified, in the midst of being slapped and spit on and scourged and murdered and buried, Jesus loved God with His whole heart and His whole mind and His whole soul. Jesus made our human nature in that moment holy. He made it Sacrificere. He gave Himself, His whole self, including our human nature as a gift of love to the One from whom He received it. And what about our sacrifices? Catechism of the Catholic Church. That's not the spot I wanted. Paragraph 1085 if you're writing it down. The liturgy of the church. In the liturgy of the church, it is principally His own Paschal mystery, His passing over from death to life, that Christ signifies and makes present. During His earthly life, Jesus announced His Paschal mystery by His teaching and anticipated it by His actions. When His hour comes, He lives out the unique event of history which does not pass away. Jesus dies, is buried, and rises from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father once for all. His Paschal Mystery is a real event that occurred in our history, but it is unique. All other historical events happen once, and then they pass away, swallowed up in the past. But the Paschal Mystery of Christ, by contrast, cannot remain only in the past because by His death, He destroyed death. In all that Christ is, all that He did and suffered for all men, participates in the divine eternity. He is God, and therefore what He does in our human nature is taken up into God's life. And so, it transcends all time while being made present in them all. The event of the cross and the resurrection abides and draws everything toward life when you participate and I participate in the mystery of Holy Easter, when we stand at the foot of the cross, we are called to do one thing. The one thing that Jesus did. And that is to love God with our whole heart and our whole mind and our whole soul. To give our entire self that in dying we might live, that in dying to ourselves and our own desires, and our own self-satisfaction, in our own independence, we might once again become dependent upon the only One who can save us from mortal life. The only One who can pour into us life which is eternal. My brothers and sisters, for us who have been baptized into Christ, we are invited over the next few days not to stand on the sidelines as Jesus walks to the cross, but to walk there with Him. To put aside all of those things in our life which we have become dependent upon apart from God. To set them all aside and to make our life about one thing, and that is the life of God. To give of ourselves so fully that we can say with St. Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then, we can stand with Jesus at the foot of the cross and in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, not My will, Lord, but Thy will be done. And when we do that, when we truly die with Christ to ourselves, when we can stand at the foot of the cross and say, yes, Lord, I accept You and Your life as my only true life, then my dear brothers and sisters, death cannot contain us, for we will be filled with the one thing that destroys death and that is the life of God. It is no great mystery that God walked out of the tomb on the third day. He's God. Death cannot contain Him. The great mystery of Holy Easter, the great mystery of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, is that He did it in our human nature. And on that third day, humanity walked out of the tomb. Death no longer has dominion over Jesus Christ, death no longer has dominion over those who have died with him. Thank you very much for your attention this evening.
0: All right, if the, the Old Testament says that God wants our love not, human, not uh, animal sacrifice, why did the Jews keep doing this for centuries? Okay,
1: it's a, it's a good question. Okay, it's a, it's a good question. I'm just going to go back, and I might go back while we're doing questions to some of the things I said because sometimes I know I quoted a lot at you guys tonight, but it's like heavy-duty stuff, and it's better to hear somebody else say it than me. The blood shed in sacrifice was not then a vicarious punishment he meted out on an animal instead of on the person who immolated, immolated it, which is our common view of the sacrifice of Christ, and his, his point is, which is our common view, right? Um rather, and here's the key: the life of the animal was consecrated to God. Um, it was a symbolic dedication of the life of the person who sacrificed to yahweh he 's got a reference here to Leviticus 16. let 's look it up i haven't, uh, haven't taken a look. I should have done that, but let's see what what, um, what Leviticus 16 says. and uh, Leviticus, mm-hmm just see... Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, I guess it's, it's, it's helpful. Um, um, verse 6, um, chapter 16, verse 6, "...And Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the door of the tent of meeting. and Aaron shall cast lots and so forth, among uh, the goats, one of the one for the Lord and the other for for Azazel, and Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell, okay. And so I, I'm not sure it's all that helpful because it's still in biblical terms and we get ourselves wrapped up into it. Um, but it, it's, it's for himself. I think that's the key phrase there. And what the author is saying here is that is that. It was a way in which the person could offer their life okay in, in biblical terms, life was in the blood okay this is why they the, the Hillel, uh, uh, butchering right to get all the blood out of it lest you think that by eating this animal you're participating in its life and, um, and so this is what the pagans did okay to get power out of the animals uh, but rather as a way of saying I give this gift of life to God on my behalf. Okay? And certainly imperfect. And this is why when we were reading in those other texts, especially in, uh, in Isaiah, well, not Isaiah 50, what were we reading in Psalm 50? When he says, Do you think I need the sacrifice of blood as though I eat them? No. Right? A true sacrifice is a sacrifice of praise. And at the end of that psalm, he says, then uh, uh, then you will offer calves upon your altars. Right? Um, And because it's it's only in that gift of thanksgiving that the gift of things to God of the animal sacrifices can be fitting. It's God that wants our heart, but we need in some sense things, ways of giving, right? Um, We still understand this, I think, interiorly today, this desire somehow to give ourselves to God. Um, And Jesus invites us to that more perfect sacrifice. And this ties in, by the way, to... Who's asking me a question during the break? Yes. Ask your question because I think it ties... I'm sorry to take over to... Okay. So what was God's will regarding Jesus and the cross? I, I, to go back to the conclusion of what we were talking about, that he that, said something about, 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 this, about um, willing. God willed the sacrifice. That's how you said it. God willed the sacrifice of Christ. If God didn't will the sacrifice of Christ, then what he did he do? Well, he did will the sacrifice of Christ in its true nature of what it is. The true sacrifice of, of, of Jesus is his life. Jesus lived a sacrificial offering to the Father every moment of the day. And this is why the church fathers, when they explained Jesus' willing ascent to the cross, did not talk about it in terms of justice. They talked about it in terms of revelation. Jesus ascended the cross willingly. He willingly was slapped. He willingly was scourged. He willingly died and was buried to reveal to us the depth and the breadth of God's love. That He would love us to the end. He would love us to the deepest point, to the furthest pigpen of our sins. So much so, that He would descend into Hades, the dwelling place, the abode of the devil, and there light a fire that could not be extinguished. When Jesus entered, as St. John Chrysostom says, when He entered into Hades, He destroyed its very nature. Because eternal life, like light shining in a dark room, darkness is cast out. When eternal life entered into the abode of death, death was destroyed internally. Internally. So did the Father will the sacrifice of His Son? Absolutely. Absolutely. He willed that His Son give His whole life to the Father. Was He pleased with the sacrifice of His Son? Absolutely. What His Son did. Was He pleased that Jesus was scourged and crucified and treated like a a criminal? The fathers didn't think so. And I think... In our hearts, when we look at the reality of the situation, I I couldn't believe in a God who is bloodthirsty for the murder of His Son. No, He's thirsty for His Son's life. And His Son's life is revealed to us again in its depth and its breadth. His love is revealed in its depth and its breadth when He gives all of Himself. And in that, He shows us a way a way in which in dying, we live. To stop living for ourselves like Adam and Eve did and start living for God. So that we can say, as I said before, according to St. Paul, it is no longer I who live. Do you see how there's, there's an aspect of, of death there? There's an aspect of giving of our life in order to gain our true life and our true identity which is in God. So could have Jesus redeemed us without dying on the cross? All right. There's a basic principle in theology, and that is not never to build your theology on what ifs. Alright, because you're going an endless road of what ifs. Okay? Some theologians would say that at the moment of the incarnation, Jesus brought our humanity into the full presence of of God's life. He filled our humanity up. And therefore, at the moment of the incarnation, He brought us home to the Father. And the rest of His life was an invitation for us to participate in that reality and a revelation, again, of the breadth and depth of that love. I'm not going to build a theology on what-ifs. Okay? Um, But it's certainly food for thought. Uh, Deacon, being the Year of Mercy, Uh, could you maybe explain how this talk relates to the Divine Mercy Chaplet uh, praying to the Father, that uh, offering His Son's body and blood for the atonement of sins, uh, how this relates to the talk, if it's perfectly in sync? I think it is. I think it is. Um, uh, And we do, by the way, have a two-part series I did on the Jubilee Year, the Jubilee of Mercy. Don't ever forget that. The Year of Jubilee of Mercy. It's important to understand its biblical foundation in the jubilee year of the Old Testament, uh, which was um, a feast of mercy every 50th year. Well, every Sabbath year times 7. So it was the Sabbath of the Sabbath of Sabbaths in which God blesses, right? Right? Um, filling things up with God's life. The year of Jubilee in the Old Testament was the year in which all debt was forgiven. All debt was forgiven because in those days to become indebted to someone was equivalent to becoming enslaved to them. Okay, Why is that important? That Israel frees their slaves, those they hold in debt? Because they themselves are freed by God. And to be in the image and likeness of God who frees them, they must do what God does. They must free them. And so they were called every 50th year, and we are called in this Jubilee year, to, um, to forgive debt. Yeah, physical, real financial debt is not uncommon to be forgiven in a Jubilee year. Father, you probably remember this. Some of you probably remember this from the, year, from the Jubilee year 2000. I heard a number of stories of, um, of property that uh, maybe an order owned that it gave to another order that was used. It just forgave the debt. Here, it's all yours as a real act of forgiveness. Uh, but more importantly than that is spiritual forgiveness. Right? That we might be forgiven the debt as we forgive those that we hold in debt. So that we can be remade in the image of the one who forgave our debt. And so I would say certainly this Jubilee year and this uh, passion tide, this time of uh, Paschal tide of going from death to life is not only its an opportunity, it's an invitation for us in our life to make God's life ours, and that is to forgive debt. And that means real forgiveness. If you have a brother, a sister, a friend, a former friend, a neighbor, um, real people in your life, a fellow parishioner, It's time to forgive them. And it's time to ask forgiveness. Even if you don't think you've done something wrong, it's time to ask forgiveness and embrace them. They don't want my forgiveness. You give it anyways. Give it anyways. To die to ourselves and to live for God. To begin to live our life. And you know what what God says in the book of Leviticus about the Jubilee year? If you do this, then I will make My dwelling among you. And I will make you fruitful. And I will multiply you." You heard in Isaiah 58 about the real fasting. About stopping to point the finger and stopping uh, 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 talking bad about each other. About, about uh, feeding the poor. Giving to those in need. And not just material need, but spiritual need. And giving of ourselves. He's talking about love. And He says, then your light will rise like the dawn Church of Chantilly, Church of St. Timothy. You want to change this city? You want to change this society? It's not going to happen in a presidential election. It's not. God hasn't ordained it in that way. It's going to happen because you live out your identity in the image and likeness of God and then your light will rise like the sun in the morning and we'll bathe this city and this society and our nation and our world in the light of Jesus Christ. And we'll light a fire that cannot go out. To the extent that we do that, Christianity thrives on this earth and darkness is driven out. And to the extent that we don't, then we see the results in our society and in our families and in our churches. Let us first of all understand that Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, personifies the whole mankind and also each one of us, and also each man. And Bethany, the home of Lazarus the man, is the symbol of the whole world as a home of man. For each man was created a friend of God and called to this divine friendship, the knowledge of God, the communion with him, the sharing of life with him. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. And yet this friend whom God loves, whom in love He created, called to life, is destroyed and annihilated by a power which God has not created, death. God encounters in His own world a power which destroys His work and annihilates His design. The world is but lamentation and sorrow, tears and death. How is this possible? How did this happen? These are the questions implied in John's slow and detailed narrative of Jesus' coming to the grave of His friend. And once there, Jesus wept. Why does He weep if He knows that in a moment He will call Lazarus back to life? Jesus weeps because He contemplates the triumph of death and destruction in a world created by God. It stinks, say the Jews, trying to prevent Jesus from approaching the corpse. And this awful warning applies to the whole world, to all life. God is life and the Giver of life. He called man into the divine reality of life and behold, it stinks. The world was created to reflect and proclaim the glory of God and it stinks at the grave of Lazarus God at the grave of Lazarus God encounters death the reality of anti-life of destruction and despair he meets his enemy who has taken away from him his world and become its prince and we who follow Jesus as he approaches the grave enter with him into the hour of his which he announced so often as the climax and fulfillment of his whole work the cross, its necessity and universal meaning are announced in the shortest verse of the Gospel. And Jesus wept. We understand now that it is because He wept, because He loved His friend Lazarus, that Jesus had the power of calling him back to life. The power of resurrection is not a divine power in itself, but power, but the power of love or rather love as power. God is love, and love is life. Love creates life. It is love that weeps at the grave, and it is love that restores life. This is the meaning of the divine tears of Jesus. In them, love is at work again, recreating, redeeming, restoring the darkness of of the life of man. Lazarus, come forth! And this is why the raising of Lazarus is the beginning of both the cross as the supreme sacrifice of love and the resurrection as the ultimate triumph of love. And thank you, ladies. I. I'll just close with this, uh, a final thought. I encourage you over the next week um, to make this the most important journey of your life. For some of us, it may be our last on this earth. For some of us, it most likely will be our last on this earth, in this room. Don't let that opportunity pass you by. Take time off of work. Take the kids out of school and make this week different. And make it an opportunity for you to set aside those things which we've relied upon. Not just the minimal obligation which is required, but to say, yes, Lord, I willingly journey with You today to the cross. I willingly die to myself I willingly set aside all those things which I become dependent upon that I may live with You so that on the day of the cross, on Good Friday, we can say, yes, Lord. Yes, I willingly die to myself. And then, as I said before, I can promise You this, that You will also rise from the dead with Him on Easter morning. Go to the Easter Vigil. I know it will be full. I know it will be late. Go there in the darkness of night with the other women who journeyed to the tomb of Christ while it was still dark in Jerusalem. While the doors are still closed. And there, prepare yourself. Prepare yourself to see Jesus rise from the dead in your life. Thank you for coming tonight. God bless you all. Please pray for me and I certainly will be praying for you.